You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from John chapter 12, verses 27 through 38. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is the word of the Lord. It's so good to somehow be with you. Um, As Clint said, my name is Chase, and I uh, have gotten to know many of you from Christ Church, especially the the folks on staff, and I'm so encouraged by you guys, and I'm excited to at least bring God's word to you tonight. And uh, Sister Who Read, those were great verses that you read. I'm sorry to say, as Nathan and I were doing this over email, I think we got our wires crossed, so I'm going to preach a slightly different uh, set of verses than the ones that were just read. It includes what you read, so um, we'll get there. But if you've got your Bible, let's just back up a little bit, and and we're going to jump in at verse 20, so we can kind of get an idea of, of the context. Uh, so Christmas is behind us. Uh, we are now looking forward to a new year, and um, I don't I don't know about you guys. Uh, I'm not the kind of person that stays up until midnight on New Year's Eve. Uh, I don't like staying up late. I'm a morning person. That's just too late for me. Uh, and, and you know, I know it's going to happen, right? I don't. I don't need to see it. It's going to be on my phone tomorrow. It's going to be the next the next year. But this year, I kind of want to stay up till midnight. I don't know if anybody else is with me on that. I just I kind of want to stay up to make sure that 2020 leaves. Um, and and that's I think how a lot of us feel, right? This has been. This has been a tough year. Not all bad. I, I know some good things happened for me. Um, I'm sure some did for you, but it's still been hard. This has just been a very hard, unusual year. And I think we're all looking forward to the new year with an extra sense of hope and expectation. Like something is going to happen at midnight on December 31st and like COVID is just magically going to go away. And all the crazy stuff happening in our country is just going to go back to normal and the Cowboys are going to have a good quarterback again. I think we just 
feel that way. And, and there's nothing wrong with putting some of our hope in next year being better than this year. That's okay. We can want good things to happen. But, but we have to remember that that's not our ultimate hope. That our ultimate hope is not on something changing at midnight on December 31st. But our, our hope really is set on a different hour that happened a long time ago. And that's what Jesus is talking about in this passage is, is a different hour that is where our hope is placed. So uh, if you read through the gospel according to John, and I believe that you guys preached through the whole book of, of John, so this will be kind of fresh in your mind if you've been at Christchurch for a while, but, but the gospel of John is kind of structured around a countdown. So repeatedly there's these instances where uh, Jesus or John says that there's an hour coming that hasn't come yet, and so it's looking forward to this hour. Well, chapter 12 of the gospel according to John is when the hour actually comes. So that's what we're going to be looking at is, is what is this hour? What does it mean for us? And the verses that I want to cover with you tonight are we're going to back up to verse 20 and we'll just stop at verse 33 of chapter 12. And we're actually going to kind of, I'm going to jump around. We're like you guys at Desert Springs. We, we like to go verse by verse, but this passage is kind of uh, like a sandwich. Okay. So it's got Jesus talking about his hour and what that means for the whole world in one section at the beginning. And then at the end, there's another section where he kind of picks up the same thing. He's talking about the hour and he's talking about what it means for the whole world. And then right in between those sections, there is a part where Jesus turns to talk to his followers and what that means for us and how uh, that impacts us in the way that we specifically are disciples or followers of Jesus. So, so it's kind of like a sandwich, and we're going to take the two ends first, and then we'll consider what's in the middle. But I don't want you to think in me saying that, that that means that what's in the middle is somehow meatier than what's on the outside, because this whole thing is meat. This is just one big meaty passage. It's like two prime rib steaks with bacon stuck in between. So that's our, that's our text this morning. And or what day is it? It's this afternoon. Uh, it's, it's great. This is a great passage. So we're going to start with verses 20 to 24. So if you're looking at John, this is what happens. Uh, up to this point in John's gospel in, in chapter 12, Jesus has uh, been doing a lot of signs, and then he arrives in Jerusalem for the Passover festival. And when he comes to Jerusalem, he's received like a king. So everybody takes there are palm branches and they wave them around and, and they say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And then picking up in verse 20, verses 20 to 24, we see Jesus talking about the hour of the son's death. So if you're keeping an outline, that's where we are. Verses 20 to 24, the hour of the son's death. In verse 20, it says, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now this points to what is the greatest division in the ancient Jewish world, which is the division between Jews and Gentiles, or Jews and non-Jews, okay? So, so the Greeks are the people from other nations. So these Greeks are here at the festival and it says that they've come to worship Israel's God, but they're not Jews. So maybe these are God-fearers, or maybe these are even proselytes, so converts to Judaism, but they're not Jews. And this, in the Gospel of John, is really meant to be like the first glimmer of the fulfillment of the promise that God has been making throughout the whole Bible, right? This 
promise that he made to Abraham in the book of Genesis that through the offspring of Abraham, God was going to bless all of the nations of the earth, not just Israel, who was descended from Abraham, but he was going to do it through Israel and specifically through Israel's king born in the line of David. So this mention of these Greeks at the festival is cluing us into this global plan for all of the nations that God has. So in verse 22, Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And now listen to what Jesus says to them in verse 23. He answers them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, I want you to pretend like you don't know the rest of the story, okay? What do you think Andrew and Philip would have been thinking when they hear Jesus say, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified? As you probably know, the phrase Son of Man is significant. When Philip and Andrew hear Jesus call himself the Son of Man, they, they would hear that as a clear reference to Daniel chapter 7, when the prophet envisions one like a son of man who comes with the clouds of heaven to stand before God, the ancient of days, on behalf of the whole nation of Israel. And Daniel chapter 7 verse 14 says, To the Son of Man was given, listen to this, dominion and glory and a kingdom so that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now think about what has just happened in John chapter 12. Jesus has been publicly honored as the king of Israel, and now here come these Greeks, these representatives from the nations that want to see King Jesus. And then Jesus says to his disciples, now is the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. What do you think Philip and Andrew are thinking when they hear Jesus say that? They're thinking, all right, this is it. The kingdom has come. Jesus is about to take his throne in Jerusalem. He's about to start overthrowing our enemies, and we're finally going to be on top. And that's going to last forever because his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And that wouldn't be very surprising if that's what they thought, is it? Because that's how we work. That's how we think in this world, we want to be great. We want to be on top. We want to see our current situation improve and stay that way. We want to have more power, more control, more status, more glory. But what does Jesus say? Verse 24, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. So the gospel is so surprising. In just a few days from his triumphal entry, Jesus will be arrested and he will be crucified. So the hour that Jesus has been counting down to, the hour of his glory, is not him being lifted up on a throne, but being lifted up on a cross to die. And Jesus gives them this metaphor. He says, imagine a grain of wheat. And I really want you to do this. Picture a grain of wheat in your mind. So I think of a, a stalk of, of wheat shooting up into the air. It's, it's basking in the golden sun. It's kind of blowing in the breeze. 
And Jesus says, as long as that grain stays there, it remains alone. If that grain were to be selfish, if it were to cling to its place and love the position that it had, if it even tried to elevate itself even more, if it refused to come down and die, well, then that grain of wheat preserves its life, yeah, but to what end? For what purpose? It remains alone. But Jesus says, if it dies, what happens? It bears much fruit. What was one glorious grain of wheat becomes something so much more. It becomes what it was always meant to be, a, a whole another stock with more grains that fall and bear more fruit until there is a whole harvest. And what is Jesus talking about? He's talking about himself, isn't he? He's talking about the gospel. This is just like what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 2, that, that Jesus Christ existed in the form of God. He was God the Son, but he did not count equality with God, that place with God, something to be grasped onto, something to be to clung, be clung onto tightly. But instead, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. And he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus was not a selfish grain of wheat content to hold on to his status and remain alone. He humbled himself as a human so that he could die on the cross. And Paul goes on to write in Philippians 2 verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to so the glory of God the Father. And I don't know about you, but I hear a lot of echoes of Daniel 7 in that, don't you? The Son of Man is glorified. All of the people from all of the nations do come in and, and acknowledge him as Lord, as King. But how does the Son of Man receive that glory? It's by giving up his glory. So the hour of the Son's glory is the hour of the Son's death. So now skip down, if you're in John chapter 12, skip down to verse 27, because here Jesus is going to unpack more about this hour and what, what it accomplishes, how it is that his death bears much fruit. So verses 27 to 33, if you're taking notes, that is the purpose of the son's death. So we saw the hour of the son's death, now we're looking at the purpose of the son's death. In verse 27, Jesus begins, Now is my soul troubled. Uh, unlike the other Gospels that we have, what we call the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John's Gospel doesn't record Jesus praying a prayer of agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. Okay, but, but here, John does say that Jesus says, my soul is troubled. In some places, that word troubled is translated terrified. So death on a cross was one of the most painful, torturous, and shameful ways that someone could die. Our word in English, excruciating, comes from the word for cross. So Jesus knew not only the hour of his death, but he also knew how he was going to die. He says that in verse 
33, he knew how he was going to die, would be lifted up on a cross. And the thought of that troubled him. So Jesus prays in verse 27, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Now at Desert Springs, we've been preaching through a series where we've been looking at the different places where Jesus says why he came, okay? All of those statements were in his own words. He says, I have come to dot, dot, dot. And this right here, this is that statement in this passage. Jesus says, I have come to the hour of my death on a cross. Isn't that amazing? The whole reason that Jesus came was incarnate took on a human nature was for this hour and so in verse 28 jesus says i father glorify your name i don't want you to to save me from this i i came for this father be glorified and i think this is just like what christ prays in the garden of gethsemane where he says father not my will but your will be done it's the same heart that the obedient servant has i'm not going to worry about my own suffering i'm going to focus rather on obeying my father and trusting myself to him i'm not going to worry about my pain i'm not going to worry about my comfort not worry about my wants i want to focus on god and his glory and after he prays that prayer father glorify your name something amazing happens it says a voice came from heaven saying i have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And I love Jesus says, this is, this is for us. This is a, a voice for us. This is only the third time in all of the Gospels where God's voice is heard audibly. And I wonder if you can think of what the other two are. The baptism and the transfiguration. And this is very similar to that. What this voice shows us is just like in those places, the Father approves of the Son. He says, this is my beloved son, and everything that he has done in his life up to this point, all of the signs, all of the teaching, this glorifies my name. And then the voice says, and I will glorify it again when Jesus dies on the cross and is raised. So that shows us something else that's really important. It shows us that the Father and the Son are of one will, okay? They have the same purpose. Jesus didn't come in spite of the Father's will. The Father sent the Son. And that is so important. That is so comforting for me because I can be tempted to think that, that the Father is the mean one who doesn't like me and the Son is the nice one who got me on the Father's good side. But that couldn't be farther from the truth because the Father so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. John 3, 16. So the father wanted, sent the son, and the son came in obedience to the father's will. And so what this shows us is that Jesus dying on the cross was God's plan all along for the father's glory. Do you get that? Jesus says, Father, don't, don't save me from this because it was for this purpose that I came. It was for this purpose that you sent me so that I could die on the cross. And so at this point, you should just be asking, why? What could possibly be so important that God the Father would give his only begotten son 
to die on a cross? What would be so important that the Son of God would obey his Father's will and do something so unimaginable that he would, he would not hold on to that place, that equality with God, but he would come down and take on flesh and humble himself to the point of dying on a cross? Why would he do that? Well, look again at verse 24. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So ask yourself, what's the fruit? You. You are. Jesus came to die for you. That was the purpose. That was the whole points. Unless he died, he would remain alone. But if he dies, God gets you. Isn't that good news? Verses 31 and 32, Jesus unpacks for us how this happens. Verse 31, he says, now is the judgment of this world. Now is the ruler of this world cast out. When Jesus says judgment, what he's referring to is the judgment that we all deserve for our sin. Okay, every one of us, as we've confessed together tonight, every one of us has disobeyed God's commandments. And the Bible says that because of that, every one of us deserves the wages of sin, which is death, the wrath of God, even the eternal wrath of God in hell. And in verse 31, Jesus also mentions the ruler of this world. That's Satan. In Hebrews chapter 2, the author to the Hebrews says that, the devil has the power of death, and he keeps us in spiritual bondage because of our sin and our fear of death. So we've got a big problem. We all stand condemned under the right judgment of God. It's like if we were all criminals in a courtroom and we were looking up at the judge on his seat, and he declared a guilty verdict on us. And there's nothing we can do about it. There's no way that we can get out of it. There's no amount of money that we could pay. There's no amount of good works that we could do to pay off that debt. We just stand condemned under judgment. And that was the reason that Jesus came. Because he saw us in our need. He saw us under judgment. And he knew that there was nothing we could do about it. And so he did something himself. This would be like that judge sitting up on the throne, sitting up on the seat, calling us guilty, and then coming down off of his seat and standing in our place and also receiving the punishment that our crime deserved so that we could walk away free. That's why it's so important that, that Jesus came in the flesh. This was a problem that couldn't be solved from a distance. God the Son had to come and be just like us, able to die so that he could suffer the just punishment that we deserve. And that's what he did. And that's why he came, so that he could do that for you. In John's Gospel in chapter 3, verse 18, John writes this, the one who believes in Jesus is not judged. You hear that? Isn't that the best news? The one who believes in Jesus is not judged. How? Because Jesus was judged instead. If you believe in Jesus, he takes the wrath that you deserve. But then John goes on to write in verse 18, the one who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. 
That's what Jesus means in our text when he says, now is the judgment of the world. One way or another, everyone on earth is judged at the cross. You're either judged worthy of judgment because you saw the, the sacrifice that the judge has made on your behalf and taking that judgment and you deny it, you reject it, and you say, I don't believe in that. And you suffer all of the consequences for what you deserve. Or you believe and you accept that free gift of forgiveness from the one who died for you. And then you are no longer judged. And the amazing thing about all of this is that that wasn't amazing enough. The, where it gets even better, at least in this passage, is the big idea that Jesus is trying to get to is that this forgiveness, this, this freedom from our judgment is available to everyone and anyone who will believe. This is where it ties back into the Greeks coming to look for Jesus at the very beginning, okay? They are not second-class citizens in this kingdom. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter what you've done. All you have to do is believe. That's what Jesus says in verse 32. I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. All people. It doesn't mean all people without exception. It means all people without distinction. This gospel isn't just a gospel for Israel. It's a gospel for all the people that would look to Jesus, that would see him lifted up on the cross and see him lifted up in glory and believe in him as a better Passover sacrifice. Anyone that would look to Jesus can come and be forgiven. Athanasius, the, the bishop of Alexandria in the third century, he wrote this, it's only on the cross that a man dies with his arms outstretched. It was fitting that Jesus die with those outstretched arms that he might draw his ancient people with the one and the Gentiles with the other and join both together in himself. That was why Jesus came. So, as we're looking at this text this morning, that's the beginning and the end of our passage. This hour that Jesus came, the hour of his glory is the hour of his death. And that hour makes salvation possible for all people from all nations. And so what about this part in the middle? If you look at verses 25 to 26, this is where Jesus switches a little bit to talk specifically to his followers. And we see in verses 25 and 26, the example of the son's death. Verse 25 says, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the father will honor so what we see here is that this metaphor of the seed falling to the ground, it's not just about Jesus. It starts with Jesus. It has its basis and its fulfillment in Jesus who died on the cross for us. But this is a spiritual principle that applies to everyone in his kingdom. Jesus is using this following language. This is, this is the language that a rabbi would use of his disciples. If a rabbi calls you to follow him, what was expected is that the disciples would follow very closely behind that rabbi. They would stay right with him, and not only would they listen to his teaching and learn how to say his teaching with their words, but they would also live their lives in imitation of their 
master. And that's what Jesus is calling us to, the same kind of discipleship. That's why he says, where I am, there will my servant be also. And the great thing about this is we will follow Jesus into his same glory. Did you see that at the end, verse 26, it says, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So we are like Andrew and Philip, sharing in this kingdom and this reign of our Lord. But we don't receive glory in a different way than our master receives glory. That is to say, when Jesus asks us to follow him, we don't follow him physically. We follow him by dying with him. We follow him by laying down our lives just like he did. And only that way do we follow him into eternal life with God, sharing in his glory. So this is the principle that Jesus is unpacking in these verses. He says, if you love your life, if the grain of wheat refuses to fall down to the earth and die, you will lose your life. But if you hate your life in this world, okay, that is, if you don't consider your life or your relationships or your possessions or your comforts as being worth held onto at all costs, if you will be willing to let those things go to lose even your life, then you will be raised to something even better and you'll keep it for eternal life and you'll be honored with Jesus in the kingdom. But I want, to, I want to stress here that following Jesus is going to hurt. It is excruciating. Jesus is not exaggerating when he says that we have to die with him. And you shouldn't let anyone make you think that believing in Jesus is going to be easy or pain-free. As I was thinking about these verses, I was just reminded of how contrary this is to our culture into our world. We live in an age that is very therapeutic. Do you know what I mean by that? The whole point, according to our culture, is for you to feel good and feel better. So if you don't feel good about something, then something must be wrong, and the goal is to make it better, whether that's physically or especially emotionally and spiritually. So you need to be affirmed. You need to be encouraged. You need to be built up. You need to be self-actualized. And if something doesn't feel good, then you're doing the wrong thing and you need to do the thing that does make you feel good. These are the kind of books that sell in the bookstore. This is what daytime TV is all about. It's just trying to make you feel good. And unfortunately, this, this culture has seeped into the church. So you'll even hear this if you listen to many churches, ones that I would say are, are conservative. They confess that the Bible is the word of God, but you listen to the message and, and it kind of just comes across as God wants you to be happy. And God has a wonderful plan for your life and he wants to help you understand what your purpose is and solve all of your problems. And I'm not saying that that's not part of it, okay? That's, that's kind of the gospel, but that's not the whole gospel. I'm afraid that's more the gospel of the grain of wheat that doesn't come down. And so it remains alone and it doesn't bear fruit because what Jesus is talking about, the real gospel, comes through the cross. It comes through suffering. And that's what Jesus has called us to. And, and we just don't have categories for that. But we have to, church. We have to have categories for dying and only after dying seeing that resurrection, seeing that fruit as it's born. 
So what does that mean? How do we follow Christ in dying? Well, first, we die by believing in Christ. Okay, so, so I'm especially talking to non-believers, if you're listening, if, if you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ. To believe in Jesus is its own kind of death. And actually, the Bible says that there's a spiritual reality to that, that when you believe in Jesus, you are actually united to Christ in this profound spiritual way so that you died with Christ on the cross when he died. And in the same way, you were raised with Christ when he came up out of the grave. And that resurrection life is at work in you. This is what Paul means in Colossians or Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So there's this union that happens with Christ. But, but really what I want to talk about more specifically is that believing in Jesus costs you everything. To believe in Jesus feels like death. When I'm sharing the gospel with a non-believer and, and I've laid everything out, for them, and, and I know that they understand the principles of the gospel and what I'm talking about, but they just still won't accept it. I'll often just ask that person, What are you afraid of losing? What are you afraid of giving up if it means following Jesus? Is there a relationship that you're in that you know is sinful, and that if you actually repented and believed in Jesus, you, you know that that would mean that that relationship would have to end? And you just don't want that to happen? Would believing in Jesus mean that you have to give up your career ambitions and you're not ready to do that? Would becoming a Christian mean that your weakened plans have to change? And as silly as it sounds, that was actually my biggest stumbling block before I became a Christian. I knew that if I put my faith in Jesus and obeyed Jesus as my king, then that would mean that the things that I did on the weekends with my friends that I knew were sinful, I just couldn't do anymore. And I was afraid of giving those friends and those experiences up to follow Jesus. And when I say it out loud and I say it now, that sounds so silly, but that was my heart. I wanted to hold on to those things. And Jesus says, if you hold on to those things that you love, well, you'll lose everything. But if you let those things go, if you hate those things, and grab onto Jesus by faith, you will gain everything, eternal life and in this life. So if you're listening and you haven't believed in Jesus, I would encourage you to just take his word seriously. There is a judgment. There is a judgment that is coming, and Jesus can suffer that judgment in your place, and you can have everything, but you have to believe. And for those of us that have believed, church, once you have taken that first death of dying to yourself and believing in Jesus and, and dying with Jesus and being raised with Jesus, well, then the rest of your life is just more dying every day. These verses in John, they're, they're parallel to the other places in the other gospels where Jesus says, take up your cross. I'm sure you've heard that phrase, take up your cross but listen to this luke 9 23 he says if anyone would come after me let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me this is like what dietrich bonhoeffer once said that when christ calls a man he bids him to come and die 
the whole of the Christian life lived in faith in the Son of God is a life of continual, daily dying to yourself. Okay, do you, do you understand that? Repenting of your sins is dying to yourself. It's going to hurt. And you're saying no to something that you have pursued because you thought it would bring you some kind of pleasure and you are turning away from that thing, turning back to God that, that hurts, that feels like dying, okay? Exercising self-control and not turning back to sin, that is dying to yourself, that hurts. Confessing your sins to other people, that hurts. Not justifying yourself, not boasting in your accomplishments, that's a dying to yourself. Apologizing to someone, asking for forgiveness, this is dying daily. And serving someone. Considering the needs of someone else is more important to yourself. And, and meeting those needs, even if it costs you something, well, that's dying to yourself. That's excruciating. But it bears fruit. And that's the point. If you can get this, this, this changes everything. Okay, This principle of the grain of wheat dying, it just applies in every area of our lives, we, we should always be looking for opportunities to die to ourselves so that we can bear fruit in our own life and in the life of others. So as we're living our lives, if we're willing to die, if we're willing to serve Jesus and serve others, even if it means suffering, then just like Christ's death was both a death and the beginning of a new kind of life, that's how it will be for us. Yeah, we're going to die, we're going to feel pain, but we're going to come through that on the other side, transformed, holier, more faithful, more like Jesus. And that's fruit. That's the fruit that God wants. And I could unpack this in so many ways. You can just think about those moments where you have laid down your life, it has hurt, and then so much good has come in this life on the other side. Think of being in a fight with someone, and, and rather than holding on to your justification and trying to end up right in that conversation, you know, and you can do that, right? You can win the fight. You can end up on top in that argument. But what happens? You remain alone. That relationship is fractured. But if you will die, if you will admit that, that maybe you were wrong and you will seek reconciliation at cost to yourself, well, you've died, but, but something beautiful and new has come out of that in your life, a new relationship, a stronger relationship. And you can apply this in so many different ways. And that's fruit in this life, right? It doesn't even get to the fruit that we have for eternal life. And I think this is what Jesus is, is trying to impress on us, that if we are a people that go out into the world and are willing to die so that, so that we can bring about greater good and more fruit, well, that's the kind of people that go out into the ends of the earth and reap a harvest. I'm so encouraged by you all and your focus on missions and, and your generosity towards missions. You're dying so that missionaries can be sent out to share the gospel. But Jesus calls all of us to be the kind of people that will die so that other people can have their greatest need met, which is to hear about Jesus and to believe in Jesus. And Jesus is calling us to follow him to be the kind of people that not only say these words about our Savior who died on a cross, but to live our lives in such a way that it reflects this truth, that we believe that we had a Savior who died with his arms outstretched and wanted to meet the needs of anyone and everyone that he could. 
And so that's what he's calling us to. You have to remember that every one of you, if you've believed in Jesus, you're a grain of wheat that came from a grain of wheat that died so that you could have life. And that grain of wheat came from a grain of wheat that died so that they could have life. And that grain of wheat came from another grain of wheat. And all of those grains of wheat go all the way back to the grain of wheat. That glorious grain of wheat that didn't hold on to his place on that stock, but came down so that he could bear much fruit. And he wants us to just keep that process going. So as we go into a new year, I'm reminded, I grew up in, in Texas. So in the South, they do this thing where uh, on, on New Year's Day, you eat black-eyed peas. And I don't think they do this in New Mexico, but this is, ask anybody from the South, this is what you do. It's, it's like a lucky, good luck tradition. And I hated it because I hate black-eyed peas. They're gross. But that was what you did. J January 1, you eat black-eyed peas. And the story behind that is black-eyed peas, uh, a long time ago, was was really the food that you gave to horses, okay? So it's not good food. It's what you ate when you had nothing else to eat. And the idea with this tradition is on the first day of the year, you eat poor people food, to put it bluntly, so that by the end of the year, you're, you're eating rich people food. You're eating prime rib bacon sandwiches. And isn't that kind of how we all want to approach the new year is, is that we hope that our circumstances are improved at the end of the year, that things have gotten better for us in our life than they were at the start of the year. But what if we go into this new year, not with that vision, but this vision that Jesus gives us, this purpose that he's given to us of being grains of wheat that, that die, that go low so that others can be brought up, so that we would all be lifted up with Jesus and glorified with him in heaven. Let's have that vision, church, as we go into the new year, and let's pray to that end, okay? So will you pray with me? God, we thank you so much for our Savior, Jesus, that, that didn't stay away from us. He didn't hold on to his equality with God, but he added to himself a human nature so that he could die in our place, that he sacrificed his life so that we could have eternal life with you. And God, I pray that if anyone hasn't believed that gospel, that, that you would call them to yourself even right now and that you would help them to let go of the things that they love in this world so that they would, they would hate them by comparison so that they could receive everything from you. And God, I pray for Christ Church and for Desert Springs Church and for all of our churches in Albuquerque and, and in North Africa and around the world, Lord, that you would help all of us, all of its members, be a people that are willing to die, to lay down our lives so that we can seek the welfare of other people most of all their spiritual welfare, so that they would believe in you and receive eternal life with us. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.